Come to Disney. You should be on the train. Welcome to Oral Hygiene. We are getting into our Caught Disney series. We might really just be talking about the film somewhat today, but it's a fun one to talk about. It's Dumbo. This is Matt here. We have Thomas Gorence, the paranoid American on the other end. Hello, hello again. Hello, hello. Working on through these movies a little more. Um, this is the first one that I guess is kind of out of like the the purview of what your original um I guess uh, research was into because we did Pinocchio, we did Fantasia, we did Snow White, which you, you know, had like half of you, you had enough notes to like write a book on those. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and those ones, admittedly, I, I was watching specifically through kind of like occultist lens. Um, and I didn't for both of those movies, too, for Snow White and Pinocchio. I don't know if I had as much of a personal connection to those. So I was it was very easy for me to like step outside and watch it from a whole bunch of different angles and like really read into it and try to find like every little symbol that I might've been able to find. Um, that's not really me normally as a, like a person, I feel like I would never get anything done if I was just constantly looking for triangles and like occult symbols everywhere. Um, so I, I took a little bit of a step back from that uh, in Dumbo when I was watching it and taking some notes, but also this might, be the hardest movie out of any movie that you could name in the you know in the universe it would be the hardest one for me to step outside and remove my nostalgia from it because this might might have been the one that was on repeat the most from ages i don't know two through ten or something like like i i I absolutely have not seen this in over two decades but i felt like some of the scenes like like i I could almost recite them by memory as they came up i I think for me Maybe I just saw Dumbo once as an actual child, like maybe like a, you know, um, take take the kindergarten kids to the matinee theater, get them out of the parents hair for a while sort of thing. I think I, I think I saw Dumbo that way. And then for I, me, this would have been just like the one bootleg VHS that my parents happened to uh, to have recorded. So it was just stuck in the, the VCR for years. Right. So queue up, you know, um, 25, 30 years later, where I have a daughter and um, it's right at the time Disney's putting out all their classic films on Blu-ray. So. I got Dumbo and partly she wanted to watch and partly I was like, oh, I'm going to put on Dumbo again because yeah, as a, as a 30 something year old dude, I was like into Dumbo. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I teach a lot of kids. I, now I want to point out though, as a, as a 30 plus year old guy, uh, I think out of all the Disney movies that you might have on repeat, Dumbo might be the least creepy of anything that you could pick. <laughs> okay. That's good. It was that in the uh, somewhat recent uh, Winnie the Pooh movie that, tended to be on the highest rotation for disney oh and those crappy straight to video tinkerbells because there was a you know toddler in the room (laughs) (laughs) but um no i i quite enjoyed watching it then of course you know the pink elephants i've already like made like albums of psychedelic rock by this point so watching the pink elephants you're like what (laughs) that's great um so but yeah my recent views probably yeah it's, it's been a few years since i i had seen it so it's kind of fun to revisit um I teach yeah, and, and kids, I don't, so. I don't have kids, so I rarely have a reason to rewatch like old Disney classics unless it, I'm just specifically in some kind of weird nostalgic mood. 
yeah recently i have not been doing that so much of course but um no and kids I'm curious, asking, like, how, what's your favorite disney movie what's your favorite character uh, it, it, it depends on the day but it's either going to be dumbo in the movie dumbo or stitch awesome. lilo and stitch uh with the with the writer i love to add to the kids it's because they don't talk <laughs> oh wow I, I actually didn't even make that that mental note that dumbo never actually uh says anything throughout this movie right as, as much as i love pinocchio he does have that voice that is a little bit grating <laughs> uh sorry you had you had your your, your point to make <laughs> uh no no i was i was basically just chiming on to exactly what you were saying okay um just in case someone's just kind of stumbling into this without having recently done it um i i, I could you give us that tv guide ramble just on what happens here uh for you mean for the entire movie yeah, in a TV guide sort of way, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's essentially about a elephant that has huge ears, which uh, originally is sort of like an embarrassing thing that the elephant hides and becomes this uh, this funny thing that he stumbles over and is you know like a blocker for advancing through life and just causes nothing but problems. And then towards the end, learns that the ears allow the elephant to fly. Um, so it kind of like reveals. I, I kept going with like a reindeer. Uh, or like a Rudolph analogy of like, haha, you know, Rudolph's red nose. And it's like this big um, way to like outcast the, the one person that stands out. And then they come through and save the day. Uh, very much an analogy here to, to Dumbo, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, like, like you said, um, maybe this one has less like overt, like let's dig into the magical symbolism, but that kind of is an encapsula encapsulation of like what, you know, not uh, uh practitioners of of magic would be doing right you know turning the profane into something rarefied which is kind of what this movie does um yeah in i mean and you could also from from a more generalist standpoint it's sort of like the quintessential hero's journey of being born with this burden um and then going through this you know self realization followed by transformation followed by atonement you know it's it's almost like uh step for step joseph campbell um but you know 1940s cartoon yeah um and and i think you could said you had read the wild minds book about animation if if not it's it's it sounds like you have but <laughs> um i i had always had the impression that this was like what disney's b team was up to while the a team was doing something else which is and i think i said that on a previous podcast which i will need to correct myself uh with dumbo apparently being the result of the animation strikes of the early 40s where the fleischer studios was uh basically like castrated and then like taken over by paramount around this time due to and stuff. and 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 no small part to Disney as well for siphoning away a lot of uh, Fleischer's talents. Exactly. Um, so it was so they had already been bleeding out for years and lost a huge. I mean, when Disney released their first two movies and Fleischer's, you know, biggest thing to the market was like a ten minute animation that would been a, would have been like a preview to a, a motion picture. Um, they were sort of on the way down, and then yeah, Paramount was just like a way to like kick them while they were down and absorb them. They, they did have uh, the the late resurgence with the, the very cool Superman cartoon, of course. But um, yeah, yeah. But Disney was also like hurt. I mean, you know, maybe 
it seemed like he didn't understand what workers' rights were, more or less. <laughs> What's his quote? Like, I, I, I started off as a Democrat and eventually became a Republican, but... <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I mean, uh, so I've read a, a very controversial book. I, it's called, I think it's like the, the Dark Side of Disney. It's like the unofficial biography of Walt Disney. And it gets into some, some very interesting territories. Um, but one of them is, is very much his candid dislike of unions and... Um, I, I don't really think he had any issue working someone to the absolute bone. He, if anything, he saw that as like the, the most purest form of dedication to the art. And I, I think part of that was just from being like, you know, almost like a slave driver in his own mind. Um, but I think he had extremely high standards for himself, despite not, <laughs> maybe not putting in the same like work, sitting down at a desk with a pencil uh, day and night but I feel like he was also a person that probably rarely slept or rarely spent a moment that wasn't um, developing or you know mechanizing something yeah Dumbo came out in November of 1941 and I think it was February of 1941 um, like Fantasia come out like you know not a complete financially not a complete disaster but didn't set fire like the past few movies had so and with the union stuff, Disney was, he gives a speech to the company, apparently, which he's like, okay, I'm going to give myself a 75% pay cut and all <laughs> of you are going to get pay cuts too. And like in his mind, I'm sure he was like, oh, this is logical. But what he did was like, you know, basically send a, a third of his staff to the picket line. I, I, have, to, I have to say, man, from being inside uh, the ranks of Disney for 10 years, uh, admittedly, half of that was as like a, a contractor after our company sort of like parted ways from, but anyways, being inside of like the actual, you know, mechanisms of the Disney corporation, I feel like his DNA like has outlasted him. Like the, that same mentality and the same kind of like, you know, anti-union work nature. And, and more importantly, the, you know, you should accept being paid so much less and working so much harder just to have the name, you know, Disney on your resume. Like, that's a very real dynamic that exists, you know, to the same way as like Blizzard might in the video game development industry, where it's like, yeah, we're not going to, you know, give you the greatest benefits, but you get to work for us, you know. And only three years earlier, they'd had they, they got to have the Snow White rap party, which uh, just uh, I guess this maybe matches your Pinocchio release story where um, <laughs> where they, you know, once Snow White was quite profitable, uh, Disney gave folks a big bonus. Uh, he gave the bonuses a whim, uh, apparently. So there weren't like a nice concrete rubric. So when he when he was feeling generous, you'd get some money, but otherwise you would not. But he took the whole staff to somewhere up in the mountains, uh, you know, in California to, to have a party. Um, where the animators and the ink and paint girls very quickly got very drunk and started sneaking off into the bushes and making loud noises. Disney left the party early and um, the, the word on the, on the street, or at least in the, the animation studios was uh, if you want to keep your job, never mention the party to him again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I read that in uh, like one of those books or if I heard someone telling me that story, but I've absolutely heard that before. Yeah. I, I have, and I've heard another one too. <laughs> Uh, that's that's probably less entertaining, but it's still one that I always it, I'll never forget it because it was funny at the time. But that there was apparently some guy that had worked in the archives, um, and 
everyone knew that he would go down there and like sleep and, and take naps or whatever. And this was like towards like the very end of Disney's life, I think. Um, so I don't think he interacted directly, but it, like he was aware of this guy that was like always taking naps. So there was almost an initiative to like find this guy asleep and catch him red handed so that we can just fire him and be done with this, you know, this guy. Um, and it was more it wasn't because he was bad at his job. It was just because it was like really annoying that this guy was taking naps on the job. So the one time or like two or three times they, they thought they would catch him. And every time the guy was able to wake up and put his hands immediately into a prayer and like kind of do like a hail, like a um, like a, you know, father, son, Holy Spirit and was, you know, amen. And he would always claim that he was in prayer and that he wasn't sleeping. And I guess like that was always this little thing that he was able to like sneak out of it somehow. I always thought that was kind of a clever uh, anecdote. I, I had that happen, and um, unfor- unfortunately, I, I, I'm observing other people's lessons at my job. And um, you know, I, I'm usually a teacher. I'm standing, I'm walking around. Here, I'm in a chair in the back of the room, and every time, 15 minutes in, I'm like, oh, I hope nobody saw that. You know, <laughs> I think that little <laughs> micro nap. You know, there was one student staring right at me. I think they caught me. So, <laughs> <laughs> whatever, man. Yeah, yeah. As, as long microphone. as you're not driving, right? Right, exactly. No, I looked at the clock. I was like, okay, time didn't change. So <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I didn't lose too much there. But um, basically, after get, getting back to this movie, after February, you know, a third of the staff went on strike. And um, with the, the, we weren't in the war yet, but um, it was starting to be clear that uh, we needed to choose sides. So Disney and a few of his um, more loyal and for better or for worse, animators took a tour of South America, and basically whoever was left in in uh, Burbank made Dumbo. <laughs> I mean, obviously that's, Disney. That's interesting. Had, I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah, any of that. I mean, obviously he was you know calling in, sending telegrams, all of that. But mm-hmm. they basically uh, this is this is how the the mice played when the when the cat was away. You know, that's supposed to rhyme when you say it correctly. But oh well. <laughs> The mice will play when the cat's away. There we go. Got it. Okay. So th- this is literally the mice playing. If you can, you can take Timothy Mouse as a as a um, literal representation of that, or not, if you want. <laughs> well, and and I I really do have to say that um, this the animation, whether it was the A team, the B team, or the F team, this is some of my favorite animation. Like I don't care, I don't care how it was critiqued or rated at the time, or even if it was done in a rush. Some of the scenes here are are still. The, the one in particular, which we'll get to later on as we go through kind of like scene by scene, but um, the, the scene right before the pink elephants pop up, but after he gets drunk and Dumbo starts blowing the bubbles and he blows like a stair-shaped case bubble and then his sidekick tells him, you know, blow a square-shaped bubble and his trunk turns into like a geometric square and it pumps out like a squared bubble itself and then that it's like that whole sequence that then leads into the psychedelic elephants um to me it's it's cooler than anything that happens in snow white yeah by a large margin i'll go with that i mean like snow white looks very storybook very pristine you know it looks painted right this this one looks like a um like a storybook more more like you know richard scarier the Baron Stain Bears or something like that, you know, kind of <laughs> oh, the. Uh, <laughs> hey, I've seen it enough now that it seems almost right, but not quite. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's more of a, I guess, uh, cheaper storybook animation, but it works. Like I, I, at the beginning, I was like, okay, they they throw the credits are on this like circus poster motif, so they've already got us like set for this 
kind of animation, which, which was actually mostly cost saving, right? They just couldn't take the steps they'd done with Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Snow White on this one. Uh, uh, you know, the war had started. America wasn't in it yet, but it, it was definitely like time to. Uh, yeah, the, belts the, were tightening and, and uh, gold was being taken back. <laughs> and the military was already kind of asking for favors. That Again, that was part of the uh, South American trip. Um, apparently, the, the American government did tell him to, you know, keep your eye open and be a bit of an informant while you're down there because there was a, <laughs> a lot of Germans hanging around right. and uh, trying to cozy up to the locals, which, uh, you know, maybe Argentina's where that worked out best. I don't know, but. <laughs> and, and this forks a little bit into something. I don't know if I, I brought this up in our first call, but it was, it was in that the dark side of Disney book. I think that's the name of it, but they mentioned that he was sort of a, what they would call a special agent in charge for the FBI appointed by um, Hoover himself. And this was because of some, long story short daddy issues that Disney had with his dad, but they essentially said like, Hey, you're, you're in Hollywood and we're concerned with, you know, communism and fascists and just anyone that's being un-American um, within Hollywood. So, you know, let, let us know, let us know if you, you go to some Hollywood party and you hear someone talking about, oh, I want to, I want to subvert the U S and, and, you know, helps to see the nation, you come back and let the FBI know. And in exchange, uh, they kind of gave him some promises that they'd help him find his real dad. And I can only assume this is a hundred percent assumption, no backup, but I assume if they were leading him with that carrot of like, Hey, we found your actual dad, which was probably a lie. They might've also been giving him actual kickbacks in the form of like, Hey, we'll, you know, fund this, um, this movie that you can make for the, the department or, Hey, let me connect you with these guys that we've got from project, uh, you know, operation paperclip and, uh, maybe they can do something with you, but we we can leave that for after Dumbo comes out. Yeah, that, that's kind of uh, I feel like that's mostly fifties TV Disney, Von Braun and Disney slapping each other in the back. Yeah, a yeah, hundred percent. Again, a, amazing, amazing films. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> you couldn't paperclip that all you want. Um, <laughs> I, I oh yeah, I did read that whole book. What do you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's the Area Fifty One that I didn't read from Annie Jacobson okay <laughs> oh, and, and I wanted to mention too because uh getting right into the movie but I noticed a couple of things about the title screen that that struck me immediately one is a more of a personal observation but it's just that the the clowns as soon as the clowns started coming up I must have seen that intro graphic hundreds of times and for whatever reason I had like a I loved clowns as a kid I know a lot of kids are like afraid of clowns I loved them um, and I think this probably had a big part to play with that, but in retrospect, watching it now, um, without even like looking into like making the crowns, the clowns creepy, they're really, really creepy. Like almost every single clown in this movie has like a, a very high creep factor to them. Um, and I've, I almost feel like it was intent. Like they give them like these expressionless faces that lack, you know, like, like muscle movements. And you can see when they go back into the tents, all of the humans like take their masks off and stuff. But for most of the, the people in here, especially the, the clowns and the, the railroad workers, which we'll get into, they don't really actually have any faces that you ever see. Um, I, and I thought that was kind of interesting. And, oh, then, it, and then the go ahead. I would say it's almost like you're leading me into this, that um, the clowns were modeled after the animators that were on strike. <laughs> Is this true? Yeah, this is true. They, they just, they, I had no idea. <laughs> See, now I, I have to rewatch it because because there was a scene when the clowns are all undressing 
and they're kind of like, yeah, we'll show them that the, the clowns are really running the show. And now I feel like, you know, those were some direct uh, cuts at the animators that left. But uh, 100%. But all, <laughs> and, and speaking of the animators, another thing that I noticed completely out of context of what you brought up was that in the credits, the, the longest uh, title screen and the one that they reuse for two different sets of names that has the most names is for the animators and the title screen. It's actually a strong man holding up two barbells, but the barbells is the title that says animation. Um, so this almost felt like such a direct of like the animators are the one, you know, holding all the weight for this movie. They're the ones doing all the work. Yeah. Yeah. Disney was in South America. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> like it, it Usually someone's going to be like, oh, they kick up dust in the Lion King. It says sex. Right. But this is way more interesting. They just rived on like all their formal from former co-workers, you know, uh, some <laughs> some which did come groveling back, actually. But uh, I, I think it was uh, I, I want to say John. I can't remember his first name, but last name is Babbitt. Very important animator for Disney from the early 30s. They never got along. So. <laughs> You know, that's the sort of gun that was missing from Dumbo, basically, because he 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 was basically leading the strikers. <laughs> it's hard, man. You get you get a lot of very creative people in one room. There's a zero percent chance that everyone's getting along with each other. Yeah, may, maybe that's why I make music by myself in my my own room or on the train by myself. Yeah. Of course, you know, it, it is good to have some creative friction as well. So that's it's it is important to have collaborators, just if nothing else as a sounding board and to check if what you're doing is stupid or not. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100 percent agreed. But again, high pressure environment, 1940s, working under the Disney's like standing over you, making sure that you're working until midnight. Um, you know, you probably got on each other's nerves a lot quicker. Yeah. Although with the uh, move to the Burbank studio, that's also where Disney was. I mean, that, like you said, he was a little hands off in later years. And, and that was partly physical because in the. Oh, yeah, he was he was tied up with Orlando at that point. Oh, by the 60s. No, but even in the late 30s, they made a move. And before he basically had an office just off to the side. Right. People could just kind of stick their head in. Whereas uh, once they moved to the larger studio, you'd have to go to a different building down a corridor, pass a few guards, go through a secretary, all that to get to him. So um, he the, was the, the, the great wizard of Oz. Yes, he was far more um, inaccessible by that point, which, you know, I, I, I think he did. Maybe part of his, the, the actual charm of him is being able to be in the same room. So once he's once he is a suit you know he kind of sours a bit <laughs> which i you know i i get that i mean if, if my job was like kind of an isolated uh office i'm sure i'd come across as like super cold you know so <laughs> well especially when the first thing you start out is like i want to make these really cool cartoons and you bring them on the road and you're doing live sound effects and you're looking in the audience's eyes as they're laughing and cheering and you're sitting there you know clopping away and making like four fake horse noises fast forward a decade and now you're just like writing checks all day and reading over lawsuits and dealing with scabs and dealing with, you know, just just management and not actually being like right there on the ground floor that you were years ago, you know, clopping away and making the sound effects. Like I doubt, you know, beyond that initial um, road show that he went on and like really sold like a Steamboat Willie and some of the other ones beyond that, I really doubt he was on the ground floor the same way. And 
um the longer you know and the farther you drift from that you get more and more jaded obviously and you turn into a suit you know that's kind of like once you don that suit for a decade straight and you're just doing nonstop managerial tasks then some of that part dies i think yeah the last movie he actually directed himself was uh king midas in 1935 which was the first one he'd done in five years and everyone including him hated it so at that point he was just kind of like okay i'm 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 the ringleader just to uh, work in that circus vibe a little bit, but you know, he kind of realized like as the primary creator, he actually wasn't that sharp. I mean, even Mickey mouse, you know, is it's, it's not quite his. right? (laughs) And that's not a bad thing, man. I mean, honestly, being the, like being that incubator that is able to provide a space for creative people and come together and thrive and make things where, like like a hundred percent, at least in my mind, if Disney hadn't existed and let's say Fleischer hadn't existed, every one of these animators probably would have just been drawing stupid advertisements on the front of buildings and doing billboards, you know, for the rest of their lives. And the fact that even though they might have been worked to the absolute bone and into depression and mental issues, but being involved with these like you know, bringing things to life and these animations that are going to live far beyond any of us, you know, like Snow White, in my mind, is is probably going to live, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years into the future, as long as the media is retained, not just for historical significance, but based on its merit alone. And that's something that it's like, I, I could only dream to be involved with something that transcends, you know, hundreds of years. And they, I don't know, maybe I'm giving way too much credit uh, to Disney stuff, but I feel like they, they've already established themselves almost as like a global conglomerate. So they have the power to, to instill their dynasty for 500 years without question. Uh, yeah, you know, Disney, the dude obviously had more hand on the tiller in this, but I, I sort of think of it as like the, the Garfunkel factor, because for years I was like, well, Paul Simon does everything. I mean. <laughs> what, what, what's Garfunkel even doing there you know Paul Simon plays guitar writes songs does most of the lead vocals I'm like but and then I finally had the realization but it wouldn't be Simon and Garfunkel without Garfunkel you know like though the con though the the the, the dumbbell again are, are being weighed very much in one direction you you do need both elements there right uh I'll, yeah I mean I'll and, you me. know music producer is a real thing and producers are and like producers aren't just guys that put up the money and like everyone just like runs and does it like there's there's very much a like you know scouting the right talent and knowing like what people to work with together and seeing if someone has a weakness either helping them overcome it and seeing a strength and having someone lean into it more than they would if you you know wouldn't push them to do it and i've i've kind of it's it's such a hard thing to uh to to describe until you've seen the dynamic but one of my cheesy analogies that I always bring up when I'm talking to like a new artist or a writer that I'm about to work with. And I, I always, and this might be a really, really bad one. Please tell me if it's like overly cheesy, but I kind of see like a really good producer is like, you've hired a private chef to cater some huge event at your house and you've got all your friends and family over and everything. And you're just like dropping this private chef off in your kitchen, but it was your job to stock the pantry. And it was your job to make sure that the the oven was clean and big enough and that you didn't invite too many people and that you've got enough silverware. Like it's your job to make sure the environment is the most conducive environment you could possibly, you know, create for this chef so that they have nothing but, you know, success set up for them. And if anything hinders them at any point, you know, like the ovens, one of the burners wasn't working or like, oh, you ran out of salt or I couldn't find the this or the that, like that's your fault as the homeowner that hired that chef to come in. 
And this analogy being like the producer, whether you're producing animation or you're producing a music album, like the, the producer on a, on a music album, like if we go to like Brian Wilson or something, it's like a really obvious example. He's the guy that's like, no, 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 you go stand in that corner and we're going to put a mic over here. And then you guys go stand in that corner. And I want to separate, you know, the drums from the left and the right. And I, I, I want to move things around a little bit and get some more like stereophonic you know, sound going like that's the producer doing that. That's not the musicians coming up with a strum. That's someone like standing outside the process and thinking at like a much higher meta level. Like, how do these pieces fit together? How can I how can I make sure that these pieces combine in a way that the sum is so much greater than, you know, or that the whole is so much greater than the sum of its parts? The the metaphor stands. I'll just I'll just pick on the 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 one thing just for fun and because I'm a music dork. That, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, Brian Wilson never would have made anything stereophonic. So that that might have been a little bit lambastic, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, he I also mean, got just, swindled out of all of his his money and and credit. So yeah, and and McCartney as well, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, but, uh, very true. But the the other one I was thinking of was uh, Andy Warhol producing the Velvet Underground and Nico, with, in which his method was just. I'm in the room. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair point. It's a very fair point. But he, and I, I think there well, might even been like the... some Salvador Dali projects like that too, where he was like, I'm in the room and you're doing creative things. Therefore like <laughs> osmosis, right? Creative osmosis almost. I mean, not, I'm not, not giving the guy credit. He did set up the entire scene that allowed the velvet underground to be in that moment anyway. So we'll give him some credit, but he was there. He was just like, okay, I think the best thing I could do is just like sit on the couch and let these guys do what they're going to do. And honestly, <laughs> maybe that like, you know, sometimes in like in work and life, like sometimes a good manager is the one that's like, you know, my team knows how to run itself. I'll just step back and, and help out if someone runs into a problem as opposed to micromanaging. Right, because people are like, oh, micromanaging so annoying. But for the manager, that's super stressful doing that. It's not just the employees having to deal with it. Um, and that's, again, where Dumbo works so well. This really is the one where they were just kind of left to do their thing, and it came out quite well. <clears throat> Excuse me. One thing, um, I, I guess we should get into the a little yeah, bit. Let's, of let's just start Crocker. going through chronologically. There's so yeah. many tangents. We just got we got storks. I don't know. I I feel like that's finally kind of fallen out of the uh, lexicon. I mean, you and I see it. We still think of it, but I think kids know where babies come from for the most. Yeah, part. I mean, I made that exact same note. I I literally wrote, you know, babies come from storks. Wait, is this is this still a common thing today? Dude, does any kid because i don't even think that's even in cartoons anymore i mean that was in multiple cartoons all the way up through like tiny tunes i think in like the 90s were still have like a stork character and I, even like the vlastic pickle guy i'm pretty sure delivered babies at some point unless that's a that's a mandala effect of some kind <laughs> there, there actually was a cgi animated storks movie about five years ago come to think of it so may, maybe and that did they deliver babies theory. yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> but but i yeah, by that, I, it was, you know, it was kind of meta, of course, it had like, you know, like hip voice actors or whatever. So uh, it might have been like taking, you know, taking a piss at the the fact that nobody really buys the concept. <laughs> no anymore. one actually I don't cares remember. anymore. Yeah, everyone just Googles it. And they're like, Oh, wow, that's how babies are made. Okay. <laughs> with the opening scenes, I did. I definitely um, noticed with the the uh, WDP circus. Uh, yeah, that, Walt Disney Productions. Yeah. <laughs> I think I crossed a lot of wires with this and the actual little engine that could storybook. So I, I feel like the book would actually predated this by a few years. So I, I was kind of wondering, was that like a direct riff here? Um, 
Casey the, I Jr. Think the I train. Can. Yeah, yeah, because Casey Jr.'s got that like tracheotomy voice. So, um, <laughs> you know. So I, I had thing. a couple notes in this whole intro segment too. The, the the biggest one that caught me by surprise is that I never realized until today that this essentially starts in Florida. Um, it's somewhere a little bit west of Miami, but it's essentially at like the southern tip, southern central Florida. And that's where they drop, um, you know, Dumbo and all these other animals off. And that, I don't know, that, that blew my mind. I had no idea that Dumbo started in Florida. Um, yeah, and then they, another thing. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's, uh, they got they got that big map. And I was like, oh, it looks like at least Big Thunder Mountain's already there. Although it was green. Yeah. So that's not, not <laughs> at one real. point they do. They, you know, they show them going directly through Orlando. I don't think that was foreshadowing but it was a, a cool coincidence yeah if you're gonna have people going through florida going up through the middle kind of makes sense <laughs> yeah i guess so <laughs> but um one thing that i don't know if you caught this and this one i felt was kind of interesting and it, and it made me feel like maybe i was looking for like a cult vibes but the storks they're singing this uh this song and it's and the movie starts out almost with like a magic incantation although that's the beginning is almost where like the occult feeling ended for me but when they're talking about the storks uh, and I'm not going to repeat it verbatim because I didn't like write down the actual lyrics, but it's something along the lines of like, like the storks are coming for you, whether you're a millionaire, whether you're a butcher, you can't hide from us. Like we're going to find you regardless. And visually they were talking about like, we're bringing you life. We're bringing you these new babies that maybe you're not even expecting. I'm like, Hey, now you got a baby and <laughs> deal with it. But, but the things that they were saying, like if you weren't watching the video, and if you were just looked away and we're listening to them, it sounds like they're like the harbingers of death. Like they're coming for you, whether you're a millionaire or whether you're a butcher, like you can't hide from us. We're going to get you. And just the fact that like them bringing new life feels like, like what's the difference between delivering new life and delivering death um, when you've abstracted it to the point of like a bird flies out of the sky and does something so i don't know uh, and and it kept they kept singing it and they kept like emphasizing more and more about how you can't hide from them and that they're they'll find everybody eventually whether you're a millionaire or a butcher and, and that specific line whether you're a millionaire or a butcher has much deeper connotations that i won't bring us on a, a wild tangent but it very explicitly to me means death not birth that that kind of uh, contrasts with the uh the mr idiot stork who delivers dumbo um, I, I don't <laughs> think he had an actual name because he uh, he that's when I actually thought he was giving an incantation because for whatever reason, the other storks just get to like dive bomb the young right and leave where yeah, they just drop them from Mr. From way up stork, he needs to land and like do a whole like, t uh, you know, he's got like a special delivery. telegram. Yeah, yeah. He's got to do that whole like he he's the one that I thought was doing an incantation. Right. Because he does that poem. But his poem does it does work when you're looking away from the screen it's clear what he's talking about because he's yeah, like a baby a to point. joy so <laughs> and he and he and he says it two different ways so he clearly either cared about it or he was like you know told hey you know say these two different ways uh, but he, he calls that the service right which i guess the other storks don't don't do service and um <laughs> so I, I do this is a tangent again but uh, service in japan is when you go out to eat and they give you a little bit extra which is why I've eaten both um, locust and whale sperm, not sperm whale, whale <laughs> sperm. <laughs> so, so I'm curious, is this like through a straw? Do you slurp it? Is it cooked so you can like eat it with a fork and knife? In the fork and knife, it was um, it was fried whale sperm. OK, OK. And, um, <laughs> and then the, uh, one of our coworkers was like, 
how do they jerk off the whale? You're like, no, Maddie, they kill the whale. <laughs> Maddie not being me, by the way. <laughs> that but, seems inefficient because then you can't produce any more sperm. We, we don't really know that. It was just, uh, well, you keep, I, honestly, you keep it alive. It's like an endless supply, is it not? Yeah, yeah. Well, you have to find them in the ocean, right? <laughs> so, I, I wonder if they have like really fancy restaurants, like where you know some you can go and pick out the lobster that you want. If like you could walk in and you got a selection of whales and you're like, I want that one sperm. <laughs> yeah. That, that would be an interesting restaurant. Maybe they can put that at the uh, Living Seas and Epcot Center. I'll have a little extra Brian the whale, please. <laughs> what was it um hitchhikers or restaurant at the end of the universe where they, the cow comes and tries to sell you parts of its own body <laughs> my rump is very tender why don't you eat that <laughs> that won't be uh, along for too much longer yeah so i was like thinking dumbo would tick the immaculate conception box but i guess all the animals in this world are um made that way um <laughs> Yeah, and and what's funny is like aside from the sexual confusion that this might present a kid for ten years into the future, thinking that children just appear out of nowhere. But there's also a point when the stork is bringing Dumbo into the elephants, and when he like tries to give it to this lady of you know like gossiper elephants, one of them is like offended, like how oh, how dare you? Like I would even have sex, but there is no sex because they just appear out of the sky. Um, and then when they actually deliver Dumbo to his mom, and by the way, I, I've completely forgot that his name is actually Jumbo Jr., not Dumbo. Dumbo is like a nasty name that one of the ladies called him and he just adopted. But anyways, when Jumbo Jr., a.k.a. Dumbo, is delivered to his mom, the mom is like bashful. She's like blushing and like covers up her face with her ears like, oh, who me? No, I wouldn't have had intercourse with anybody. Where did this baby come from? But I but, you know, watching that as a kid, I didn't have any idea that, you know, there was like these reactions and like being embarrassed or being offended that you would have had a kid. Um, but watching it now, it was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting dynamic that they're like shaming. They're shaming another elephant for just having a kid, period. Yeah. And her name still in Dumbo's original name is still Jumbo. I mean, it's not like that. Jumbo, Jumbo, Jumbo Jr. Jumbo Jr. I'm yeah. like, Jumbo sounds like that started as an insult as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not much better. That That's the thing. I, yeah, my nose. Oh, Dumbo, sick burn. You know, I'm like, <laughs> Jumbo's already there, folks. <laughs> that doesn't sound great. Um, I Yeah, watching them build the circus after that, I... I re, you know, I recently saw the the remake of Nightmare Alley, so that that was definitely like <laughs> going through my mind. Uh, also, you said you had something to say about the uh, the the workers in this case, but I definitely was like, man, Frozen basically does the scene at the beginning, and Hi Ho, the, the, we keep having the uh, menial labor song in all these movies. <laughs> oh yeah, although the the Hi Ho one, I feel like is way more jovial. Like they were enjoying their work and they were just doing it because it's the only thing that they knew how to do and and the esoteric connotations of that made it you know it, it didn't have like as dark of a feeling because they were like earth elementals doing their thing in their element you know it's like a, they were like pigs in mud essentially um even though to us going underground and just digging away at dirt forever sounds like a horrible menial task but for them it was like that's their you know that's their fish and water thing for this one though 
they clearly have a bunch of black guys getting off the train and just going doing manual labor and singing songs and then they juxtapose that with the elephants doing the exact same thing pounding stakes into the ground to put up these um tents and to me it was like this very direct correlation of like these are the beasts of burden working within this circus and for whatever very interesting artistic direction they didn't give any of the workers faces there would just be just a, a sphere for the head yeah that also might allude to the fact that um you know the atmosphere working at disney studios was probably a lot nicer five years previous or well, no three years previous it wasn't even that long i guess i guess it would have been four years five years when they were working on snow white so maybe it was a cheerier job putting in all that work whereas by this point it was a little more of a slog <laughs> maybe i have i have to feel like it was a slog from day one for both it, of them. it was a slog but one, maybe once the high ran slog. off after like three months of sitting in that table with blisters you're like all right the, the high's worn off now i'm not sure if this was a great idea yeah i'm just wondering if, it, if it, the changes where it seeped a little more into animation by this point so yeah no, you're, you're absolutely right you're absolutely right Okay, uh, where do we go? Well, so so the the train they set up the tent, so then they have their first big show, and this is you know Dumbo's first appearance out in public as an elephant or as being part of the circus. Oh right, and at this point, his only task is waving a flag, which he can't quite manage. But hey, you know, I have to make two year olds go out and perform for their parents sometimes, so I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I don't know, th this was such a, a stupid and small moment, but for, for whatever reason, it made me laugh. There was a part where um, a, they show a camel and the camel's mouth is like clearly full of spit. And it looks like the camel's like looking around for a place to spit and can't find it. And it just swallows it. And for, <laughs> I just thought that was such a, a random uh, little clip, but I, I loved it so much. I do need to share one of the more fun little kid um, presentations I've had recently where we were filming a video for the for the moms for Christmas time. And um, everyone's just supposed to kind of wave and smile and say Merry Christmas. And I got the one kid who's, you know, he's a little troublesome in class. He's not that bad, but um, he's got he's screaming Merry Christmas with a uh, BS smile on his face, like double barreling like middle fingers. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like I. I like, I, I don't think the Japanese staff knows. I'm like, I'm just going to let that happen. That's, that's great. <laughs> Did you advance also, the film not, strip? I mean, it's not really. Are like, you on the final page? In Japan, most people well don't done. I mean, so <laughs> uh, the kid had clearly learned somewhere. But uh, it's not, like a fun inside joke that you get to enjoy and other people don't. Exactly. That's right. Which, again, <laughs> this movie has a lot of those. Um I did notice it might have been just in the show or just after the show where they had the water animation. And, and that was definitely the moment where I could be like, oh, yeah, they're, they're, this is a cost saving movie because uh, you think about the Fantasia water animation, which is insane. And here it is. It still looks cool, but it's very streamlined. Yeah, but I, I think the, the point of the water here was a prop as opposed to Fantasia. The water was almost a character. Yeah. But I mean, a big point of Dumbo in general was we are going to cut as many corners as we can. So this movie will actually make some money. <laughs> I think I, being... honestly, I, I love the man. I mean, it, it's hard. I mean, it's impossible to know what like the detailed high budget version of this would have been. But I'm still enamored with the entire movie end to end. And even even the places where I can tell they were cut it. If you compare it to like a cartoon that you might have seen in the last 10 years, it's like, oh, yeah, this is a masterpiece. <laughs> Well, I, I think art often does 
benefit from some limitations. Like Fantasia basically has no limitations. It's a masterpiece. It's not nearly as fun to sit down and just watch as Dumbo, you know? So, <laughs> and, and also I was, I was quite happy to see that Dumbo was like an, almost an even 60 minutes and it's over real quick. I mean, like by the, by the time I even was wondering like, Hey, how far along is this movie? It was like over half over. Um, and there's some other Disney movies that get much longer and just the pacing this one, if anything, it ends a little bit early in my opinion. So I don't know. I, I love that. I, like, it might be unrelated to the budget or it might be directly related that it might've been a little bit shorter and faster paced, but it, it worked. Like it checked all the boxes for me. This was conceived as a short, it was you know, just a 10 minute short and it was expanded to feature length. So I think that was basically as much as they could stretch it. Um, in the wake of snow white's profits, they basically went and bought like uh, every storybook, right. They could, uh, which Dumbo would have been one of those. So, um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, again, uh, the limitations I find are fascinating. They're fun to talk about, but the perfect brew ends up here. And yeah, like I said, this actually is pretty much my favorite Disney movie, except for uh, days when I decide it's Lilo and Stitch instead. And Lilo and Stitch basically had the same creation process. That really was the B. Well, you were probably closer to the ground on that, but that really was the B team for a straight to video movie. And it just worked out where they're like, hey, this is actually good. Let's put it in the theater. Oh, yeah, and they killed it with, like, all the, the Happy Meal toys and everything, too. Like, it was a, a huge hit. And um, I, I, maybe that's where I like Stitch slightly better, because he's, like, psychotic and violent, where Dumbo is nothing but sweet. <laughs> and, and, and speaking of that, man, like, I, I actually had to start keeping what I called a, a feels meter as I was watching this every time. And, and again, I don't know if it was it was probably more of nostalgia of just, like, you know, being a little kid that didn't have to worry about anything. Cause I was literally ages, you know, three to 10 or probably less than that three to like six when I saw this the most number of times. But so like the first one was the, you mentioned that the little train that could just, just hearing that just reminded me of like, man, this is probably when I discovered like maybe the, the first elements of like beatboxing and just like um, this kind of like onomatopoeia, style you know music creation where you start with a noise and then the noise turns into a rhythm and then the rhythm turns into a melody and that was this this train exactly so for whatever reason like uh i, I didn't exactly like tear up but i felt like i felt a feeling when i was like man that like there's some kind of dna in this and then the second big one was um after this first show dumbo is like playing with his mom and they're just playing peekaboo but like you said it's like the most genuine wholesome game of peekaboo you know you could ever imagine um and then that was that was that hit my feels meter that was my feel number two i i actually i was trying to um figure out who the redheaded kid that really that makes jumbo go nuts I'm, I, I know he was based on someone which i haven't found but i have found that actually dumbo was made by the remaining b team with the a team was on bambi Disney observed mm -hmm. that Dumbo was an obvious straight cartoon and that the animators that were assigned on Bambi were not appropriate for a look of, of Dumbo. So that's kind of interesting. So uh, both cases are true, it seems. But uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like I've read before that that, that redhead kid is actually based on someone. But I, that, I, I yeah, that wouldn't that's interesting. And after you mentioned the clowns, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, it, it's like has to be at this point. But uh, and not just that, but like we, we had mentioned a couple other ones. 
when you're talking about animation and the amount of frames and production that goes into just one person saying a word, let alone that redhead had very articulated movements and had very specific dialogue lines, like, you know, someone spent the equivalent of like the man equivalent of, of months just animating and voicing over and uh, refining that guy to be in there. So there's a, there's, there's a very specific reason why that guy had that look and said those things, even if it might be lost a little bit, you know, to time. So um, I, I also do a Twilight Zone podcast and there's some episodes where I'm like, I can't just do this episode with little basically two middle-aged white guys talking about it. So I'm broaching a topic here where I would, would like to have a different voice, but we are here talking now. So l- let's bring it up. Um, there's a Twilight Zone episode, The Big Tall Wish. It's, uh, as far as I can tell, the first time we had an African-American lead on TV. And he alludes to the fact he's got a bunch of scars and, you know, just talking about, you know, the 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 uh, the scars in our flesh being like deep seated things. And my guest on there was talking about how, you know, a lot of black men even today kind of feel like they can't protect their woman. You know, that even with the whole Will Smith slap thing that kind of came through there a little bit. Right. And you mentioned the whole like the elephants and the workers being equated as beasts of burden. So we have Jumbo, basically her parental instinct, her motherly instinct, you know, catching in and there's nothing she could do about it, which is kind of like, I, I, that's just coming to me now, but I'm like, that's kind I, I'm probably reading in too much maybe, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, the beast of burden trying to assert itself and being slapped down is kind of a major theme. And it's, par- it's honestly the most heartbreaking scene of the entire movie by, by far. Yeah, well, I'm just trying to, yeah, Again, I'm pretty sure the Disney Corporation 1940 was not like trying to put this particular message in. But I'm <laughs> right. like, but I think it it even if it's inadvertent, it kind of does come through that way. And I'm like, that yeah, that's that's why once we get to our baby mind song, it makes it that much, you know, more heartbreaking, right? Because yeah, it's like like people want to feel like, especially, you know, not to be like sexist, but a man wants to be able to like protect their family. Right. So, and uh, Dumbo is a Jumbo is a single mom. So she's trying to protect her family. And, and I don't, unless I missed it, I don't think there's any male elephants in the movie at all, aside from Dumbo. And I guess I'm assuming Dumbo's gender there, not that it, it has any role in the movie, but I don't think I, I even saw a male elephant period. No, I, I got to the point where I, cause I've always assumed Dumbo, Dumbo is male and, when I was watching it, I was like, are we sure? Is Dumbo a daughter? I mean, it, it never really comes up. There's never a, a, a plot point where it's only resolved by the gender of Dumbo. So I guess it's it remains ambiguous, no? So, yeah, we should we should point out uh, that we do not know Dumbo's pronouns. So, <laughs> <laughs> And if they're in the movie, they were assumed most likely. Yeah, yeah. But, so. but I, I want to mention, too, because the part where, they, where uh, Jumbo starts protecting jumbo jr um or you know dumbo is because like the kids are making fun of it and then one of the kids crosses the line by actually like interacting with dumbo and pulling his ears and trying to rip him away from the mom so then she starts you know fighting back and then that's perceived as oh this elephant's gone wild um not in like a a sexy 90s dvd way Mm -hmm. but like this you know this elephant's lost its mind it's like trampling people but it you know she clearly wasn't she was she was just you know encouraging people to stop messing with their kid but the the part that i think is a little bit more heartbreaking is that if you imagine actual circuses in the late 30s early 40s 
I mean, if an elephant got out of line, what hap- What they portray in the cartoon here is a much lighter version of what they actually would do. And even in the cartoon, they whip the elephant like in the face and then they actually start jabbing um, the elephant with like sharp, almost like coal pokers, um, you know, like like bayonets on the end of sticks. And they don't actually penetrate her body in the cartoon for obvious reasons. But just the fact that they show like them jabbing these sharp things at the elephant and missing. Um, I mean, this these were things that were actually happening to elephants at a circus. If it you know didn't walk in a straight line, it would get jabbed by a freaking poker that would you know lacerate its skin um and just kind of seeing that that it was like you know that was the light version but i like i mean you know, i almost need to see an even lighter version where they're like poking it with pool noodles or like you know like <laughs> little like flower bouquets you know like poke 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 but it was like yeah they, they would literally like if this weren't a kid's movie you'd see blood coming out right now oh yeah for sure um <laughs> but yeah uh, you know uh since i started like doing more podcasting critical analysis or just like thinking about things um a, a whole point of the star wars franchise and this does come through in the obi-wan show that's on now is uh you know the measure of a person is how they treat their droids you know <laughs> so and you know in the maybe circus, yeah yeah i guess so i guess the so. Measure is how you treat i don't know if animals. i'm if i'm ready to, to take that step into uh, assigning uh human characteristics to my computer overlords yet and i hope that does not reflect poorly upon me in the future computer yeah. overlords yeah we all have well um yeah i was caught screaming obscenities at my iphone a few months ago so <laughs> <laughs> but i usually don't <laughs> but uh yeah it's like it's like saying thank you to the ai you know i, I don't know it seems, seems reasonable to do that, so. that's actually that's a really great litmus test because you can you can uh tell your your amazon or your google you know speech device to shut up and it's the same as stop a lot of the time um, but sometimes if like I say that and someone else is around, like they, they actually, it seems like they get offended on the AI's behalf. Like, did you just tell it to shut up? It's like, yeah, it's just the same command as saying stop. There's no difference between the two. Um, but yeah, I, get, I might just be digging my grave and I might be, you know, regretting this, you know, <laughs> horribly in the future. So. Right. Right. Who, who knows? But yeah, I mean, how we begin, that's, that's a big thing. Like, how do we start to, that's a completely different topic with how do we treat emerging intelligences that may or may not be artificial. Right. But you're putting that psychic, you know, vibe into the, into the ether, so to speak. Right. So even if it's an inanimate object, you're still putting the thought into the ether. So I guess that's something to consider. (laughs) Maybe how how woo woo do you want to (laughs) get? I'm just like, that's yeah. It's like, I mean, every once in a while, I'm to- I'm totally into like just like headbanging to a bit of metal, but I, I tend not to listen to a bunch of it because I'm like, man, if- yeah, if you surround yourself with dark things, things get dark, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, not not just that. It's it's almost like if you just had nothing but the news on all day, like it would be impossible to not just be a doom and gloomer because all you're hearing are like the most sensational, horrible things. And if you just surround yourself or just hell, just bury your head in the sand, uh, you might end up being a lot happier. And have a more optimistic outlook but yeah separate tangent no that's a plus in japan because i don't really watch tv and when i do see it in the in the in the dining room uh it's japanese news which is one more chilled and two in japanese which my japanese is not great so i can mostly tune it out (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i i should i should probably go watch an american news show just to see the contrast because it's been so long since i've seen one 
Just don't. Uh, I shouldn't. I'm just saying out of curiosity because it's. I literally haven't seen an American news show for, geez, probably a decade. <laughs> it's, it's almost like, man, I should go out and just like smoke a little hit of meth just to see what I've been missing out on. <laughs> what was it? Uh, an Anchorman 2? Well, now we know you can't smoke crack on live television. <laughs> um, so... This is a, this is where Timothy Mouse shows up. I was actually surprised how long it takes for Timothy to show up in the movie because he's basically like the second character you think of. Well, and and it's also interesting because like the stork almost seems like the stork could have been the side. It was a shoe in to be the sidekick, um, but the stork just is irrelevant. The second Dumbo is delivered, which which felt a little bit like disjointed to me. Like a I don't know. This might be too much of like a Chekhov's gun. Uh, mentality um with like Chekhov's gun is like if you present a gun in act one that it needs to go off by act three it's like you know don't ever show a detail that doesn't play into the story which doesn't always have to be true it's almost like a trope um but you know it's for me like I always think that like oh this character in the beginning is gonna have to play some kind of a role and the stork's just like nope I'm here I'm gone and then you get Timothy the mouse which I love way more than the stork uh just to be clear <laughs> And, and actually, um, and again, nostalgia may be talking, but I think this mouse sidekick might be my favorite Disney sidekick out of any of them, even beyond Jiminy Cricket, which I think was my previous favorite sidekick. I, I can go with that. I, I was noting when he shows up, he's kind of a Greek chorus of one. I guess because Dumbo doesn't talk and can't express his own feelings. Uh, when Timothy shows up, he shows there to basically do that at, before even introducing himself. He kind of describes like, oh, look, the elephant's sad or, oh, look, now we're happy. Like he kind of is describing the things that Dumbo can't say for him or herself. Oh, this, this is just an absurdist statement. But hey, sometimes those are the ones that take traction. I, I just wrote, I bet Timothy Mouse is just the demiurge getting bored and interacting. But in the, <laughs> in, in the case of this movie, or almost because we have a mouse, it's the studio, a mouse built, different mouse. But yeah, <laughs> OK, I can just... go with that. I can go with that. Again, I, I know I'm reading in too much, but sometimes the subconscious thoughts tend to take on a life of its own. <laughs> well, to me, this this was actually hit me in a strange way. But Timothy Mouse came across as an absolute racist in this movie to me. And it had nothing at all to do with the crows in case that's where you, you thought it was going. Nothing to do with the crows. But there's a few statements that Timothy Mouse makes. And the dialect is very blatantly like a new york cab driver um like even like the the dialect and and like the slang that he uses i, I think i i took a couple of notes down of uh oh he says we need to get your mother out of the clink like he says it this way that couldn't be anything other than like a chicago or new york you know italian mafioso and then he's and then he's uh trying to make dumbo feel better about um their ears and he says it ain't nobody's fault you got them big ears, kid. And it's just like, I love that that sort of like talk. Um, maybe it was because at this time I also was growing up in New York and I think a lot of family members were like Italian and had, you know, they might lean into that just to like be funny and play with the voice. Um, but but to, to back up my Timothy Mouse is a racist and this isn't just a salacious statement, but he says something um, later on and uh, it's it's when the clowns are starting to plot against um uh dumbo and he says you come from a proud race of pachyderms but the way that he says this is like you know you come from this superior race you're way above clowns um so don't even like don't even try to associate don't compare yourself 
with these others because you come from such a superior race and just the the fact that 1940s and it's like a very expressive you know new york taxi cab mafioso personality and just like the timing and the expression and just the context of this one statement was like it's really hard not to hear that as like literally a white guy in a studio behind a microphone talking about a superior race yeah yeah <laughs> um i was also put thinking of tim mouse tim mouse i guess i got tired of writing timothy um <laughs> i does his name actually come up do they actually say timothy mouse i'm not sure in the movie because i don't sure remember i would have i think i would have written his name down if it had come up in the movie itself yeah that yeah that might be a got it from somewhere else sort of thing um uh, again i just read the book so they were they were writing timothy mouse in there but um one thing just just to get into weird conspiracy theories as as one is one to do is um he's basically like psychic driving the circus master <laughs> oh oh so this dude this one I, I i just kept writing amazing uh over this note because again i haven't seen this in since i was a a, a child and seeing this not just the concept of and just to, to describe the scene the ringleader um is going into his tent and we can kind of eavesdrop on him and he's trying to think of like some gr great big climax that will impress all the people that go to his show but he can't think of it and he says quite specifically he's like ah maybe it'll come to me in a dream and he lays down and just that alone i was like oh that's kind of cool that you know like this this concept of um sort of like astral projection or like you know hearkening into your rem subconscious or whatever and driving you know pulling creative ideas out of that but then and it surprised me like after he goes to sleep yeah so timothy mouse walks up waits for the guy to go to sleep he hits a freaking uh pocket watch which is like a known you know hypnotist sort of uh accessory he hits it and that kind of like puts the guy into like a deeper trance essentially and then the specific commands that timothy mouse even says are are almost you know word for word miltonian uh, hypnotism which is you know he he starts with a command and he says now concentrate and just the way that he says it started with now which is like a very direct like it puts you in the moment and then how he commands concentrate that that way of like injecting someone by taking them out of their frame of reference by saying now and then immediately shouting a command is is absolute legitimate um hypnotist sort of techniques um and it's like an nlp technique and if you ever see any of the guys that do like the stage performance magic the ones that like immediately put someone to sleep or even the televangelists that like tap someone's head and they immediately fall down it's it's the exact same technique it starts with like a soft like you know now jesus and they hit you as they <laughs> scream it and that that surprises your senses like the the kinetic feel of something hitting you unexpectedly but also just like hearing this thing and it's it's like the the um climax of this anticipation of nervous energy and it's like bam and it's like you're giving the person uh an excuse to kind of like fall into this deeper state and start receiving commands and then after he says that he just specifically tells them you know you are now getting to the climax of the show, Dumbo, 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 and he walks away. Um, so anyways, that this was 100% an example of actual mind programming as far as you can take it in the terms of Miltonian uh, hypnotism. Yeah, uh, I, if you want to get really specific, I wrote down the quote, uh, climax at the pentacle of your pyramid, which sounds a touch wrong. <laughs> it does. It, uh, it, yeah, I wrote that exact same quote down. And uh, it's just a fun note. I'm not going to read too much into it. But man, if 
because because I've I've often uh, said that the MK Ultra and the Project Monarch crossover between Disney and stuff, it's pretty much like post fifties. At least it's like after World War II was you know done and wrapped up and Paperclip was over. But man, this one kind of makes me reset and walk that back a little bit because uh, this is you know this is mind programming um, like a how to guide almost. Like like if you did this to your parent, like if you watched this as a kid. And you were like, hmm, I'm going to go and wait for my parents to sleep and just whisper subliminal images and direct commands into them. I mean, there is a there is a non-zero chance that that would have an actual reproducible effect. <laughs> now, as an experienced teacher, you know, I, I sometimes I'm very specifically using my voice in a certain way, not not Dune level or anything. But, you know, like I know <laughs> if I if I say it this way, like the kids will probably respond in this way. So that's 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 um you know, I guess that technically is MPL. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's the, the the whole entire concept of rhetoric, which is an, an entire skill that's just not taught as its own field anymore. But it's just knowing how to say things and who to say them to and how to pause and how to give different intonations with, you know, the way that you say stuff. Because I, I, I've gotten chill enough. I never actually get angry. But every once in a while, I'm like, okay, to make the situation rectify, I have to actually use <laughs> right. an angry voice now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, a lot of people know it as like as teacher voice, right? Yeah, yeah. Which honestly, I don't do so much. I don't even remember doing that recently. So uh, I guess that's experience. Well, move, move back to move back to the states, and you'll probably have to relearn that. Yeah, good point. <laughs> um, so we have the that that brings us to our 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 baby mine scene, of course, where uh, you mentioned Brian Wilson. He covered that a few years ago. So <laughs> bunch of Disney songs, actually. Uh, Oh, well, actually, hold on. Before we get to the 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 saddest part where, like, you know, they're embracing and the baby mind. But right before that, there's another sort of like an occult thing that I, I tapped into. And that's that all of the elephants get together and they take a solemn vow and they all put their trunks up and solemn vow almost being like they're in some kind of like a, a society together. And that this is like a like a binding and a, a normal occurrence that they would all yeah a pack of pack of terms exactly, um, but 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 it was interesting that they come together and declare that Dumbo is no longer an elephant because he has been degraded down to the level of clown, um, and at this point um, we see clown Dumbo and clown Dumbo is a hundred percent creepy and there's a <laughs> clown so so there's Dumbo the elephant dressed as a clown in clown makeup. But there's also a clown that's dressed up as Dumbo as a clown, which is kind of like a meta thing. But that dude is really creepy, too. And then there's also this this uh, collection of like 10 or 15 like little firemen guys with little axes and stuff. And they're they also giving me like super creep vibes like that. I might actually legitimately have nightmares uh, about these faceless uh, clowns with axes running around and letting people burn to death. Well, they were given Disney nightmares if they were the uh, the striking animators. <laughs> That's true. That, it might have been just like a, an illustrated um, sort of nightmare. And then, and then the final note about this one is that after he uh, finishes the performance, despite you know everyone loving it, he just kind of like hates being this clown, and he's crying and he's feeling bad for himself. And his freaking sidekick is taking his tears and rubbing it on soap, and then using the soap to bathe him in his own tears which has all kinds of cool occult connotations, um, but also outside of a cult, just like what a cool, you know, symbolic scene there that, 
that you might just be watching it and just like, oh, he's getting a bath now. But to step back and be like, he's being bathed in his own tears and like washing off this shame and this clown makeup, which sort of removed him from his identity of being part of this, you know, pack of pachyderms. Um, but like the fact that it's his tears that are bathing him from this experience has such a, a much deeper symbolic meaning. I, I feel that was, you know, it was it was almost like like genius level um, kind of approach to it, even though it's some, such a small, tiny little detail. I just loved it. Well, yeah, I guess a transformative thing. Right. Which is is where this movie basically this is where the transformations begin uh, for the next right. 15 minutes of the movie is that I it's I guess it's just weird. Like I said, Timothy Mouse didn't show up till halfway in, you know, right. Dumbo's real journey doesn't start till we're like 75 percent into the movie. So because <laughs> this is basically where we're like the I mean, I guess the plot's been going, but this is kind of where things really start happening. It's it's, you know, mostly been a downer. I guess that's where the storybook animation so nice because everything looks nice, even though, you know, everything feels horrible. It says, yeah, you, you, you said to me that. Tim was a bit racist, or the elephants, as you mentioned, and well, I guess we're, so was most of 1941. <laughs> oh yeah, very much. But I, but I also think that the mouse was racist in such a casual way that he wasn't written to be that. It was just like <laughs> an inherent part of just a normal, you know, average Joe that they kind of based him on, which in itself is like even more racist than if they had intentionally included it. Well, that's that's why so many. Uh, from multiple studios to stick disclaimers on their old animations these days. Yeah, yeah right. You're 100% so. right, yeah. And actually, this Dumbo being one of them, although I think it's because of the uh, the crows um, right. more so. And I think these are the same crows that come up in Song of the South, just modified slightly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so are, are, are we with Mom again? Yeah, to... so we're with Mom. We So this is the, the hardest scene to watch. I legitimately had to stop it a few times and, like, take my mind off of being like so engrossed in the movie and like went and did something technical and then like, okay, yeah, it's just an animation. And then like the feels would come back and I'd have to take another break, but man, it's just like, so she's, she's locked up for going mad and she's chained with all four of her feet and she can't see out the window and Dumbo is too small to see in the window. So neither of them can make eye contact, but they can make physical contact with just like the very ends of their two trunks um, so they have this like interaction and they're like hugging and they're singing. And then the mom's trunk comes out through the window and Dumbo basically it turns into like a little cradle for Dumbo to cry and fall asleep into. And like, holy shit, I, I feel like if they did have like a like a serial killer or psychopath test, like you could just make them watch this a few times. And if you don't detect any sort of emotions, you're like, OK, you're, we're just going to put you in solitary confinement just to be safe. <laughs> <laughs> I was asked to write a draw a psychopath son on the on the board yesterday. So <laughs> that's 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 the, that's who doesn't like that's who doesn't. They're like crazy. One kid did. I, I think psychopath is like Japanese English now. So <laughs> 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 so I I, I, got, I got a nice son up. That that's the guy that doesn't like Dumbo's uh, a baby mind scene though for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's a litmus test, and I'd stand by it. Uh, of course, the only way to get past that is to drink it off, which is exactly what they do by accident. Um, and we never find out what that was, do we? Oh, no, we don't. Because Dumbo drinks it, but but the premise, it seems that both of them think it's water and that Dumbo has the hiccups just from getting normal hiccups. And Timothy Mouse has like a trick 
to get rid of the hiccups really quick. And it's to take a big gulp of water and hold your breath and then gulp it down really quick. Um, but as soon as Dumbo does that, he gets instantly drunk. And then Timothy Mouse looks at it and he says something like, you know, what kind of water is this anyway? And then he falls in and he comes out drunk, but it's like green and soapy. And like, what the hell was it? Like Jägermeister. <laughs> so there's just a big bucket of, of alcohol sitting outside of a, a 10. I don't know. It's, I, That's how clowns party. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess so. It might just be like a jungle juice or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, because then we get that we get into our pink elephants. Now, of course, you mentioned the fantastic bubble animation. So we, we I'll, I'll throw that again. But uh, I do find the pink elephant sequence pretty much the gold standard for tripped out animation, which is interesting that it uh, predates the invention of LSD by a couple of years. <laughs> well, allegedly. Okay. They they had a, they had some peyote around probably. <laughs> well, and they Something had they like had that. ergot. They had yeah. the actual fungus that, you know, um they just they just hadn't synthesized LSD yet. Right. Well, that was just a cheeky statement anyway. You you you, you could find stuff to have psychedelic visions and uh hey, I'm not saying that the that the Disney staff was doing that, but you know, it's a pretty psychedelic vision here. So I feel like somebody was. Like no like there was this wasn't a room full of absolute squares that came up with this entirely on their own. Like someone had an actual psychedelic experience involved with this movie. I'm convinced of it with absolutely no proof to back that up. But there's <laughs> but there's also a note here that they get shit faced and they have amazing hallucination, like psychedelic hallucinations, and they look like they're having the time of their lives doing it, and there is absolutely no true negative consequence to this at all. And I feel like this might have also um, planted some deep seed in my brain uh, that was like inebriation, good, no consequences needed to worry about. You'll be just fine. This is where my my researcher for this episode's notes probably step in as he's writing Dumbo and Timothy Q Mouse. Okay, he's got more than that. Got blustered, buggered, blottered on barrel of water, infused with champagne just an accident man or was it grooving with dmt ayahuasca <laughs> you get that worth fucking five minutes plus of disney's oh so precious time yeah of course <laughs> a good excuse anyway for a concord flight from reality oh what a great <laughs> what a great observation because i do have i mean i don't know this this is a huge assumption on my part but i i feel like the creation of this like psychedelic trip might have been like a subverse, you know, like a, a um, like a subverted attempt of like, hey, we put drugs in your movie Disney or something along those lines of like, hey, we got hippie beatnik shit in this movie now. Deal with it. Well, Scott's notes here respond to you. An MK Ultra imbued five minute piece <laughs> custom made to traumatize kids in their lives. Shit, sure, some kids ran out of the cinema screaming back in the day when it screened. Quite the wild card was old Walt Elias Disney. Good fun to the 33rd degree. Parade that down your drain, the main vein, Main Street. Okay. Now, like I said, these are beat poetry notes. <laughs> it's, it's hard. Again, like I said, like I usually push back on pre-1950s Disney MK Ultra connections. But, man, the, the freaking... Uh, Timothy Q. Mouse doing the mind control programming on the Circus Master. It, uh, it has humbled me. So I will, I will submit that maybe we can relate MK Ultra directly as early as Dumbo. 
I could just start reading this, keep reading this dude's notes. He'll be glad I'm reading him anyway. <laughs> uh, morphing of a bubble into an elephant. We've all been there marching in unison herds of pachyderms, <laughs> a Nazi psychedelic trip, a psychic assault on the astral form of the intoxicated. Souls of children caught in the middle of the vicious te technicolor romp. <laughs> Who the fuck likes marching in unison with others? <laughs> okay. These are fair points. Yeah, yeah, that's why, that's why I had him do this because I was like, okay, for the, for that section, he's gonna have more, he's gonna have better insights, a little more magic. Well, and I would also to, to just to push back or maybe just to, to to jazz on that a little bit and improvise, the the marching and and um like synchronization. Yeah, there's obviously like a military aspect of that, like who the hell likes that, but also just the psychedelic experience itself it comes in waves almost like the same way as like your circadian rhythm or like your heart beating pumping blood through. So like your heart pumping your blood is very much driving your senses through a psychedelic experience. So it's always going to have some sort of like a structured um, like, like rate to it. You know, it's going to, it's going to be at 120 BPM because your body is literally running at 120, you know, heartbeats per minute. Um, so that, that combined with, and I think the part where he's saying like marching around and encapsulating the children stuff, that's actually one of the coolest parts of this where the, the elephants or the pink elephants start marching. And then once they get to the edge of the screen, they sort of like turn 90 degrees and start marching vertically. And then when they get to the top of that screen, now they're upside down. And they even say something about like, a, um, look out, look out. We're walking around the bed on our head. Look out like this weird, creepy chant. And as they're chanting that to music. And as they're chanting that, they're also like starting to like grow a little bit and get taller and like they're swaying a little bit and merging into each other. And it's absolutely like a psychedelic hallucination. And this is why I've, I feel unequivocally someone on that team was like, no, I, I know what we're drawing here, guys. Like, follow my lead. As I, as I just keep reading another man's notes, it's like the movie just needed an Anunnaki non-consensual LSD Kenneth <laughs> Anger psychedelic otherworld UFO boost, apparently. <laughs> so I mean yeah. it, it's there's a reason why we're we're talking about it and having so much fun with it. It is such an amazing scene. Um that I mean it doesn't this type of scene doesn't exist outside of the Dumbo movie inside the Disney universe as far as I'm aware you could make some points about Fantasia having some similar like psychedelic very abstract things going on but man this one just standing alone as its own is is probably in like the the top 3 if not it's number 1 top oh it honestly it is my number 1 top just bit of animation i think i yeah i just Again, uh, I've seen Dumbo many, many times, and I've seen this part of Dumbo even more than that. Um, we cannot try and talk a little bit about magic without noting we have a bunch of pyramids in here as well. That's <laughs> Pinnacle right. Of the, Pinnacle of the pyramid turns out to be the climax, I guess. So, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the client. I mean, I know the climax is Dumbo flying, I guess, but I feel like as far as feeling goes, this is the climax of the movie. This is the circus, right? This is the... You know, Dumbo flying is great, but the circus is, needs to be insanity. And that's what we get in the sequence. <laughs> that's a very valid point, actually. I 100% agree with you that, that the psychedelic pink elephant vision is the climax of the movie. And that Dumbo flying is almost an afterthought. Like By the time we see Dumbo flying, you look down, and you're like, oh, the credits are going to be rolling in like five minutes from now. Oh, here we go. This the, Another note from him. 
This five-minute mass trip out does mark a rite of passage for Dumbo the ignorant, the neophyte, the gross uninitiated, as now he has been ritualized, circumcised, and baptized. It's a tale of transportation, a transformation, excuse me. So um, that that would make this part the climax if you wanted to read the movie that, that way. I love those notes, and I, I couldn't agree more. And, I, and actually, I'm, I'm, I'm almost jealous that I didn't immediately identify that, yeah, this was a, a baptism. And if you want to bring it all the way back to initiating the profane into the ultimate mysteries that quite literally especially in like greek times that basically involved going on a crazy hallucinogenic trip on ergot or some other combination of these things and it was this undeniable presence of this abstract nature of god that even the most um stubborn sort of like stoic person would not be able to deny this technicolor reality of you know trans-dimensional being um, and that very much is like exactly what Dumbo does. He has a literal baptism and so does Timothy Mouse. Um, and then they have an actual hallucinogenic uh, experience, which transforms them and unlocks new potential that they didn't have before. So, yeah, they're tripping buddies now. Now, of course, we are, uh, we are tripping buddies. Perhaps those in the past could come out from their three days of tripping in the pyramid with the uh, solstice sun shining through the pyramid shaft. Um, Dumbo and Timothy Mouse end up in a tree, <laughs> which is just great. I mean, also, it's like, you know, obviously how we end up in a tree. We'll, we'll find that out in like two more minutes. Right. So that, that is a nice little bit of um, streamlined storytelling for a 63 minute movie. <laughs> where's, where's the worst place I've found myself? I haven't found myself anywhere particularly bad, I think. I think just sleeping diagonally across like the edge of a bed is probably the weirdest place. But <laughs> oh, I've I've got I've got a a few. the The one that I'd be most willing to share is the tamest one here because it's not that kind of show, at least not yet. But I do remember a specific point in time of my life when I literally closed my eyes, and when I opened them back up, I was in a city four miles away, and I closed my eyes again, and I opened them back up, and I was in a city another two hours away, and this was in, like, high school, and I had, like, school the next morning, and I was, like, you know, eight, like, seven or eight um, hours away from home, and it was just because I went on some crazy adventure that I, adventure that I remember nothing of because I just kept blacking out. Okay, I, I'll share my father's stories from the Navy then. Um, <laughs> he has a couple of good ones. He said he was at a, in Puerto Rico, went to the Enlisted Men's Club, and they gave him some Bacardi 151. And the next thing he knew, he was 20 minutes off base in his boxer shorts in a bowling alley. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, the other one being where he had, uh, was in Morocco and went from to Tangier from like, uh, I forget where he was, but went up to Tangier, had spent all of his money and someone tried to mug him and he didn't have anything. So the guy sat him <laughs> down on his steps, pulled out a joint and they smoked that instead. <laughs> so I, I don't quite have those I feel stories. you, brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and that, that actually reminds me, I brought up another note too, that when um, Dumbo and the mouse, uh, I think maybe it's right before they start seeing the visions, but I made a note that like, they make being blackout drunk look very friendly and like a fun festive thing. But again, like watching in retrospect as, you know, like a 40 year old man now and seeing this like drunk mouse stumble around, it's like, Oh, wow. That, that mouse is actually exhibiting behavior of like an extremely problematic alcoholic, which probably has like 
of family and friends that are affected by like the the to the point where like it's cute that you're like bumbling around and like you can be a functional but way beyond the point of you know legal drunkenness like there's actually a problem going on with like you and your personality and your body probably but the movie just completely normalizes it and it's like oh what a bunch of fun drunks but all i was just thinking is like that mouse probably beats his wife when he goes home <laughs> mrs timothy mouse yes okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no i was yeah I'm, I'm 43 i at least know how to pace myself well these days so <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's uh, easy to pace. I have a drink and a half and I fall asleep. So <laughs> there we go. Um, and I guess we'll just say the, I could, we could just say the crows and then just pass them by if you want. <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, I had a couple of notes about the crows. I mean, I don't think they're again, we're, we're two white guys talking yeah. about this, but I, it didn't seem like they were as problematic as I was originally anticipating. Like, you know, I was kind of like, okay, let's brace yourself to, to hear something that's really going to, um, shock you in 2022's ears but maybe that was more song of the south or it might just have been just their general depiction and not something specific that they do or say but i, f- I felt like a they were the only the, the only animals or people or anything that we even encounter in the entire movie that treat um both timothy and dumbo as equals and equals in that like they're gonna jibe them and and sort of like you know um, work them up and and like you know kid around with them the same as they do with each other but the clowns the first thing they want to do is exploit dumbo to even timothy the first thing that timothy wants to do is exploit dumbo he's like you know i'm gonna work me and you we're gonna get we're gonna be stars we're gonna be the top of the show like every single person that encounters dumbo the first inclination is how can i exploit this animal for my own you know advancement until we come to the crows which are literally the first characters in the entire movie that don't say how can we use this elephant to our advantage they just kind of like oh haha that you know that's cool how do you think you got up here and they make fun of him for thinking that he flew um but but in reality they're like the most down-to-earth helpful guides that they meet and then um i made a note here that i just think that just like the previous scene with timothy getting drunk and normalizing that um they made smoking look so fucking cool they're like, like blowing these huge rings and like they blow it around timothy mouse and like this perfect little um like uh tourist shape and then it like expands out and i just remember looking at that like, i was like man that makes me want to go and like smoke a cigarette right now and blow a perfect o-ring it would be so cool <laughs> yeah actually I, as soon as i said do we go past the crows i was about to back up and say exactly what you said <laughs> wait they are the only they're actually morally the the best creatures in this movie they, they are yeah they're absolutely they are what do they call it like the the neutral good or the good neutral or something where like they're not out to do any harm or exploitation to anyone at least in the context that we see them in yeah so um so we'll at least back up that uh if if you were to be like the crows don't talk like the crows that's really not going to work in 2022 (laughs) but if you want to act like the crows sure that's great do that and so, and also this is the the only ones that Timothy seems that he can shame them because as they're laughing at Dumbo, he mentions you know like go on laugh at him and kick him while he's down you know this poor helpless little baby you guys must feel real tough making fun of this baby and they legitimately start feeling bad like oh yeah I guess we're kind of being dicks here I don't feel like he could have said that to anyone else in this movie and for them to have been like oh yeah actually yeah sorry we're being dicks. Well, Timothy's an amazing speech maker, isn't he? 
and and he psychic is. driver. <laughs> <laughs> he's a man of many, a mouse. Of he, many he's talents. like the the Doctor Jolly West of uh, of the Disney World. Yeah. <laughs> um. So now we get to the, the thing in the movie they call magic, which is Dumbo's magic feather, which he only need. So he's had his his transformation now, but he still needs a bit of a crutch, I guess. Maybe because he's now dealing with things that are outside the um the definition of what he thought was reality. <laughs> Yeah, well, honestly, every single animal in this movie, aside from talking, but they're just constantly breaking the laws of nature. Like when they do the initial pachyderm pyramid where they're all supposed to stand on each other and everything like that alone seems just as fascinating as an elephant that can like fly using his big ears. The fact that these elephants can like support each other and stand up. So if anything, the like him flying with his ears even though I realize that's his entire shtick and that's the whole, you know, assumed climax of the movie if you ignore the, the psychedelic trip, but it feels very underwhelming uh, compared to all of the, the huge feats that we've already seen leading up to that. I guess it's supposed to just feel like a moment of, you know, blissful joy, freedom, flying joy after all of this, you know, um, candy coated oppressiveness of the whole movie <laughs> yeah and very i mean yeah the the like the lightness the feeling of you know being weightless and being able to just fly through the air and you know carefree and everything um but and, yeah, and I, also i want to mention as he's carefree and flying and being wholesome he also gets a mouthful of peanuts and shoots them down at his own people his the other elephants like a machine gun uh like dog fighter and it's that's it's sort of like a morbid but also like i liked seeing it because i was like yeah screw those guys like you were being mean to dumbo earlier they got but he's totally anyway. shooting them with machine guns yeah they got thick skin anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um uh, i was thinking though like yeah i guess there is a lot of unnatural and crazy stuff going on but dumbo is so young it's like i have a lot of students you ask them something simple you know like and they can do it you know they can do it but they're merry which translates to like that's impossible it's like such a strong statement not like i don't want to do that or that'll be difficult that's impossible you know which i guess is how because what dumbo is still like two weeks old at this point maybe so <laughs> i mean maybe figure out how to form a word first before you decide to jump off a building and fly but that's just me hey you i i learned it i had a bus driving license five years before i learned to ride a bike so okay fair <laughs> enough <laughs> Sometimes you you got you 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 got to fly before you can walk. <laughs> and, yeah. and I wanted to mention at the very very end of this movie because essentially the second that he starts flying and shooting the the peanuts and stuff like the movie is basically over. Um, and then at the very end they have the same train that we saw at the beginning that brought them out of Florida. Um, I don't know if they're going back to Florida if they're just continuing their traveling circus uh, thing. But I didn't remember that that uh dumbo actually gets reunited with his mom in like the last five seconds of the movie which felt like an like a tacked on afterthought like that it provided no uh resolution at all from the earlier scene of her being like jabbed and and you know locked up and the my baby um you know cradle scene i like it did not resolve any of that for me at all and and i also had an even stronger departing note is when they're flying away and the other elephants that were being mean at the beginning of the movie, they're singing about like, oh, you know, fly elephant, fly. And I was, just, I just made a note of like, shut the, you know, shut up. You don't deserve to sing and celebrate Dumbo now. Like you guys were the ones that removed his elephant hood 
and cast him down into clownhood like forever with your secret pact. It was like you're not allowed to celebrate him now, and it, it, it legitimately made me angry about that. He didn't care. He owns a train now. How many elephants own trains? <laughs> a, a fantastic <laughs> Art Deco train. We should. It was. Know. Was this like a like a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory outcome, where like the kid proves himself and takes over the business? I, I guess pretty much. Well, again, if it's a movie, it's transformation. You know, Dumbo has to become his his what is um so i wonder if, if dumbo's running the circus and another elephant legitimately starts trampling people does does dumbo command the circus workers to jab and poke the elephant and lock the elephant up or well, does dumbo well, just let the elephant trample dumbo's the star of the circus you know it's like at a, on a movie set it's the director it has to deal with that stuff the star okay yeah the, yeah fair yeah. point he doesn't have to get his hands dirty or his his ears dirty. Yeah, I don't think I don't think he's day to day in charge of the circus. Just okay. Yet. Yeah, fair <laughs> point. I guess you wouldn't be, would you? <laughs> um, do we want to throw out any final points of this movie? Anything you missed? We've got our ending um, credit. I now, just I mentioned believe. that the I, I mentioned I had a feels meter. It got up to four. It got up to four, and it uh it ended after the sorry. What's the name of the song? My baby mine. Baby mine baby mine it ended after that scene and there was no more uh feels after that i feel like that was kind of the end of like the really sad parts of the movie that's the initiation for the viewer and then we get dumbo's initiation <laughs> yeah that's yeah i guess that's all right so well, the, the trauma-based programming right will will emotionally devastate you and then have some wild psychedelic fun well and so. and honestly this is such a core this maybe maybe you've got a better example but this might be the beginning of that archetype of like that we don't see the mother killed but we see the mother you know like if you said that the mom died after that this scene it wouldn't it wouldn't seem out of character if anything being reunited at the very end felt a little bit out of character but this might be like that very seed of the like you know what i think we're just always going to kill the mom and then have the story revolve around this orphaned child trying to make it on their own in the wild Star Trek and Disney, all orphans. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, that is it, it, that's interesting, and it because yeah, most Disney characters have like no parents whatsoever. So the fact that he's even got a single parent, I guess Rapunzel gets reunited, but she didn't know her parents in the first place. So, <laughs> so her actual mom does get offed, but she was evil or whatever. Anyway, that's a, that's a movie for a different time. So, uh, <laughs> I guess we'll cap this one today. Uh, Thomas, tell them what you're up to right now. This is the middle of July, if you're interested. So, oh yeah. So man, uh, it, it's easy to lose track. So uh, I've just launched, and by the time you hear this, it'll probably be over, but still available. Um, it's it's a new comic series called The Chosen One, and it stars another podcaster, um, Juan from the One on One podcast, which I, I believe you've done a few shows with. Yeah, and, did a couple uh, of Twilight the, Zones. Yeah, and, and the premise of this comic series is essentially that it's a podcaster trying to break it into a bigger market and realizing that you literally have to join a secret society in order to get the exposure that all of these like big shots are getting. Um, so it's kind of his adventure through the secret society of pod of conspiracy podcasters specifically. Um, but they travel to outer space and they go to inner earth and they go to um, a place called Tartantia, which is based on Tartaria, um, blended with the concept of the, the taint. Um, okay, so it has a, 
Yeah, no, it does. It's it, because it, it taint above the earth and it taint below the earth. It's kind of the taint of the earth. Uh, so there, there's definitely a, a slightly mature uh, edge to it, but it's going to be hilarious. I mean, it's one of the funniest things that I've been able to work on in a very long time. So it's really, really cool. And then um, I guess I'll, I'll drop this here that I'm also been working on a series of uh, visual novels, which are kind of like interactive games that give you some branching dialogue. Um, it's, it's a very natural progression from a static page looking through comic books to, oh, now I can actually make decisions, a little bit of a cross between choose your own adventure and, you know, legitimate video game dialogue. And the first one I'm working on is set in the 1940s and it's called uh, Lucifer Lives in Lower Manhattan. And it's based on a true story about Aldous Huxley's assistant in the 1940s was writing a movie called The Seventh Victim, which I believe it starred an actress named Jean Brooks. And she was actually supposed to be like this Satanist lady. It, do it doesn't come across like very specifically in the movie itself. But uh, part of the research this guy did for this movie was he was invited to an apartment in Greenwich Village, New York City, 1940s with a group of high society quote-unquote devil worshipers um so i i did a whole bunch of research and found some like really cool elements of this and i was like man this is so much cooler and deeper than just like an eight to ten page or a 20 page comic um i want to make this some like a, a longer experience that people can explore more so this this will probably be my very first paranoid american game um coming maybe in like a year who knows uh, but that's that's the biggest thing that i've kind of got going on along with hell like a list of 10 other comic projects and various stuff all right no i was uh asking i i think i before i started recording i told you i had uh been making binaural beats so when i send them to the guy I just send them with titles to piss him off which is uh <laughs> one of them is what is and what taint um <laughs> a manson family christmas is one uh and uh the two things texas is known for <laughs> Which, <laughs> is it a full metal jacket reference i assume yes it is <laughs> <laughs> i didn't want to actually type that in so i was like okay i just yeah i'm trying to piss him off actually though if you do want to check those binaural beats out he puts those on youtube i think under the name the mindful traveler which maybe is a too little too generic to search for but uh you can also find i i put the the beats themselves at my music site which is uh rovingsagemedia.bangcamp dot com and that's the uh damaged tape hypnagogic passages so play that right uh, if you're walking down the street when you're listening to it please tell me if you fall over that's actually my goal for it um <laughs> <laughs> i i just play with the inner ear balance yeah i, I mean you need to do it with headphones but i was i actually did i i followed my own warning or disavowed my own warning and played it in the car for a few minutes i was like yeah that was a bad idea so just driving I was, circles right right well i just my wife was curious i was like that's the place i usually play her music right and i'm driving for a few minutes i'm like yeah i probably shouldn't be listening to this and driving so <laughs> <laughs> so yeah don't don't drive and listen to it but do tell me if you fall over so <laughs> okay it's off off to the train with the pink elephants for me then so i will catch you in the futures future. <laughs>